You have come here from all over the world because society has no further use for you. The international prison system has given up all hopes of your rehabilitation. This place will now be your holding pen until your death. Because death is the only way out. There is no chance of reprieve here, no possibility of escape. You are condemned. Either accept it or die. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 206 and our movie this week is from 1994 starring Ray Liotta called No Escape and here to talk with me about it, he had seen it and made me watch it from the part-time gamers. It's Theo. Theo, how are you? Hey, good to be here. Good to see you. How are you? I am doing quite well. Okay, so you brought this movie to me. I want to know your history with No Escape. When did you first see it? Uh, because I was familiar with the... I'll, I'll get into kind of my history, but I was familiar with the movie, but I had not seen it before. So what's your history with it? So to... I won't give a number, but to date myself, <laughs> I actually saw this in the movie theater. Okay. And this was one of those movies that... I, I grew up in a very small town in, in Hawaii, and... Um, you know, that was probably one of the best things for me because it really opened my eyes up to, to cinema and things like that. So this was one of those movies. I was a huge fan, even back then, of Goodfellas. And, of course, Ray Liotta uh, being a part of that. And this was something I had seen, like, HBO, like, first looked for to kind of date. They used to have that. Mm -hmm. And I actually seen it in the theater. And okay. I saw it in the theater about three times. And this was one of those movies where... Um, stuck with me over for so long because it was like uh, there's so and, and I'm I'm so looking forward to your take but you talk about a movie that really has its own niche points like there's some bizarre things in this movie where you're just like oh we did that in the 90s and we thought that looked cool and we thought that looked edgy and um <clears throat> it's just something I really enjoyed for so long I'm so glad now it's on streaming for a while there was some issues with the rights mm -hmm. and it was a few months ago, just before we had started talking about doing an episode as well as this movie. Um, I remember talking to my girlfriend, and I was like, you know, there's this movie, and it's kind of it's kind of niche, it's fun, it's very 90s, but it's still pretty cool in its own way. And one of the biggest things was is you can't find it on streaming. And about a month later, it ended up on Amazon Prime, and it was like seven bucks I ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so I don't remember this movie coming out necessarily, although I'm almost positive I saw trailers for it on like the cable channel that would, there was the, the guide channel back in the day. Uh, you would have a specific cable uh, channel on cable that just ran a TV guide. Um, <laughs> and it would, it would have like the, the time and you know, what was upcoming. And then in the corner it would be just playing trailers and promos over and over and over. So I'm almost positive. I saw something uh, akin to, that type of channel and, and no escape. I'm sure I saw the box here and there uh, when I'd go to the video store, but I didn't see it. It was, I was just a little bit too young to see it in the theater. Now the next year, the director made golden eye and I saw that in the theater, Sure did. but that's PG 13. So that's a little easier for me to get into when I'm 14. 
um, as opposed to an R-rated movie like this one. But, so I sort of like knew that the movie existed, but I it occupied the same space in my brain as something like Surviving the Game. It was that kind yes. of a movie. Um, and it, it, is, it is similar. This has a lot of similarities to Surviving the Game, to uh, Fortress from the, the early I'm 90s. Just gonna go Christopher find Lambert. Great right reference. Um, Escape from New York slash Escape from L.A. And so it's similar to those kinds of movies, but it's not an exact ripoff. I wouldn't call it that. So... I so what I'm going to say is I sat down and I watched this. We were actually originally going to do this episode a couple of weeks ago, um, and our we got our wires crossed. Um, and Don't calendar well sometimes. I apologize. <laughs> it happens. We it was like not a worry. We punt for a couple of weeks. We're good. So I watched it a couple of weeks ago for the first time, and <laughs> I had a great time with this movie. This yes. was. I went into it with, because I didn't really know much about it, I went into it with fairly low expectations in terms of just like, I'm just going to sit back, I'm going to watch this movie and and see what it is. What does it give me? I knew Ray Liotta, and I might have seen one uh, Ernie Hudson on the on the poster for it, and that was about all I knew. I love Ray Liotta. Um, you know, sadly passed away last year. Uh, funny thing is he passed away in 2022. This movie is set in 2022 the future it is yeah which the yes their take on the future is very 90s <laughs> they did it's the one if so i can nitpick quite a bit on this movie because it's a it's a cheesy 90s action movie so if you want to throw on your logic hat and start nitpicking <laughs> one thing is with movies like this set them further in the future that helps because then you it's like blade runner being set in 2015 i think it was you know then you get to it, that's that's not far enough in the future ahead. I can I can let some of that go because I can just be like, well, alternate reality, right? This is what the future, the the where the timeline branched off in for this movie's existence. That's what twenty twenty two looked like. But I like Ray Liotta a lot, and he is not he was not at this time especially any kind of an action star. He had done Goodfellas, is the one you brought up, um, which is fantastic. He's so good in that. He had done Field of Dreams. But he wasn't an action guy yet. He wasn't, you know, Schwarzenegger or Stallone or Van Damme, who Van Damme was actually offered the role. Um, he was offered <laughs> the a role. Completely different movie. In a very different movie. He was offered the role, turned it down because he was going to make Time Cop, which I honestly, for him, that's kind of a coin flip. Like, Time Cop is a fun, is another one of these silly, fun action movies from the 90s. So. I could see Van Damme in this. However, what I liked about what Leota brought to it was, and I had it in my notes, like at one point I'm like, I still, I think I was probably two thirds of the movie in. And uh, I'm like, I still don't understand why he hates everyone and why he's distancing himself so hard from everybody. But I bought into it because Leota has got this like intensity to him that, He's got an intensity without without you're you're waiting for that moment where he's going to explode and he's just going to have the freak out yelling whatever type of moment. But he yes. he's it feels like he's always sitting right on the razor's edge of that. Like Leota was just really good at that. Absolutely. Um, and uh, on top of that, he got in some good shape for this movie because there's a couple scenes where he's got he his is. shirt off, and I was like, oh boy, he like trimmed down and just he looked like a 
uh, Marine. And he's supposed to be... Uh, uh, he looked uh, very much like a soldier. Yeah. Yep, he's a... So he's playing a character of J.T. Robbins, who was a soldier, killed his commanding officer, and has now been in prison for the... I think the, the in the timeline of the movie, he's been in prison for roughly 11 years at this point. That, yeah. Um, broken out of two level five maximum security prisons, so they send him to the level six, uh, yes. which is even worse. And then that uh, has a level above it, which is throw him on an island. <laughs> so... Yes. Um, we'll kind of, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of discuss the plot a little bit. Cause I do think it's kind of neat, but like Leota just, just, I, I feel like really nailed this and made it enjoyable. Once you get like during the first watch, cause I watched it again earlier today to just kind of refresh my brain. And that first watch through, I'm like, why does he hate everybody so much? Why is he just so so angry and as it goes and you start to unfold and you realize oh he's suffering from ptsd Mm -hmm. and then i was like oh that's an extra layer to this that that an actor the caliber of ray Liotta brings and it made it that much better and then you you start adding on all these other i mean it's got a great cast just top to bottom supporting cast is phenomenal and it's so many of them in either their prime or their youth and like one of the best ones is I had it on and um, my girlfriend is a huge Entourage fan okay. and she walks by and she goes, is that drama? Because <laughs> Kevin, did, yeah, because Kevin Dillon is, and she was like, is that drama from Entourage? I said, in his use, yes, that's, that's little drama. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Kevin, Kevin Dillon playing, uh, he's very young um, and he is, he's just, uh, as Casey is his character. And he just idolizes Robbins for whatever reason. Um, he latches onto him right away. One thing the movie doesn't do great, and it's not really its fault. It's just sort of the way the movie's structured. You don't really get a sense of how much time is passing. You know, he he goes to the prison. So uh, Robbins is sent to this maximum security prison where he immediately butts heads with the warden, uh, who's played by Michael Lerner. And the, I love Michael Lerner. Absolutely. He butts heads with him right away, enough to the point where uh, this warden has a secret island that he sends people to. They call it, the, the prisoners called Absalom. He will send the worst prisoners there, and that they're just left on this island. There's gunships all around it, like 25 miles off the coast. The island is in the middle, like 250 miles from, from the mainland, and they're just, they're just there. They have some supplies, but they basically just have to exist on this island. It becomes their new prison. So he sends Robbins to the prison and they watch it with satellites. But as the movie goes on, you find out that it's kind of a little shady and, and like off the books because he doesn't want people to know about it. Obviously if people knew that he was just sending prisoners to an Island to cannibalize each other, they might not like that. The the general public might have a problem with that because Prisons are are effectively a big business. That was one thing that my thought was like, ooh, this was kind of prophetic in that way mm-hmm. because prisons have become much more of a business in the last uh, 25 years uh, since this movie came out. Yeah, that was something that I, I thought I didn't realize when I first saw it because I was a teenager mm-hmm. and it didn't necessarily connect the dots for me. And then I watched it, like I said, recently. And one thing I have to say, when they go back to the prison for those who watch it, now watching it being at my age, every time they cut to it, first of all, 
where are they? Because it's like all these bad sands, and then there's mm-hmm. like these trams, and then it's like this huge fortress. And every time I see it, I think of like the Super Friends from the 70s. I'm like, meanwhile, <laughs> at the Legion of Doom. <laughs> it did have a little bit of that feel, didn't it? It um, did. Now, this is based on a novel called The Penal Colony, um, loosely based on a novel. And in that, it's the British government that has the island. Um, but they sort of, they turn it into a privately, uh, private prison and this warden that runs it and i want to say it's supposed to be maybe australia yes and i i find it interesting because it would make sense that the british would go that route because that's what australia was yeah originally and and uh you know it's kind of one of those things where there's almost not having read the book but when you kind of look at it that way there's a little bit of huh huh yeah see what we did see what we did (laughs) yeah um and I appreciated that. So the movie itself, uh, we mentioned Kevin Dillon. I liked Kevin Dillon. He was okay. Um, I could think of a few other actors around his age that I might have liked better in that role. But I think that's more of just, I was not a, uh, I wasn't one that watched Entourage, so I don't have a huge connection to him. So all I think of when I see Kevin Dillon, what my brain does is say, hey, it's Matt Dillon's brother. That's exactly. That's what I do. Yeah. Um, no matter what he's in, like you can't help but to go. Yep. <laughs> yeah. However, he's fine. He plays the the role that he's playing, which is you know the young kid who everybody kind of understands really doesn't belong there. He's that prison. He's the prisoner who was a victim of circumstance. He did. He made mistakes, but he shouldn't be in this type of a prison. Um, kind of thing, and uh, and that's how it unfolds. He's fine now. Merrick, who's our villain in the movie, our other villain, because we've got the warden played by Michael Lerner, who is the overall villain and kind of gets his comeuppance at the end. We'll talk about. Yes. But our our villain on the island, Merrick, is played by (laughs) Stuart Wilson. And Stuart Wilson is fantastic as a villain. He is so good. And in this movie, he is having a blast. Absolutely. It is. <laughs> that this was is, one of. Yeah. It, sorry. It, go ahead. It's the part of the movie that because uh, there's we mentioned like Escape from New York and Fortress and there's a little Mad Max in there too, with the kind of post-apocalyptic feel. And Stuart Wilson, uh, Merrick runs the Outsiders, which are just this cannibalistic group of nutballs that run around the island, and he's got like he's got long dreadlocks, pier- piercings in the bridge of his nose. He's just over the top as all hell, and it's so great. Um, Absolutely. And, I mean, it's one of those roles where you, you lean in hard, and, and as far as casting, you don't necessarily see that coming. And I remember seeing this, and, and this performance still clicks the way it did the first time, because he looks like one of the dreadnoughts from the G.I. Joe cartoons. <laughs> and as soon as he starts talking, he sounds like an Oxford scholar. And it's hilarious, because... Even the way he carries himself. I mean, you, you look at this guy and you don't want to mess with him. Then he starts talking and then you have another moment of, is he supposed to sound like that? Yeah. And even more so, it kind of adds to this oddity and this threat. Like, this is a guy you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. And what's so great is through so much of it, he has kind of this, this wryness, but there's just so much energy behind it. Mm-hmm. There's very few scenes where he's all, Argh! a lot of it is very 
calculated, very smart, and, mm-hmm. and with like this kind of sly cunning to it. He's great for me. He, he in, in many ways, I mean, Leota's of course fantastic, but he's, I could watch his performance alone just over and over again. <laughs> well, because Leota is playing the role, he's taking it very seriously. And I mean, I think he smiles like four times in the entirety of the movie. He just has this <laughs> dour look the whole movie. Just He just looks like somebody peed in his Cheerios all the time. And and he so he's, you know, it's, it's the PTSD, but he's playing it so, so dour and so straightforward that to flip that and let Stuart Wilson just go full-on Woody Woodpecker cartoon character, like just zany yes, as all hell, <laughs> is the perfect balance point to it. Because... And it's kind of a thing you only can get in a movie like this, and sometimes only in a movie from this era. Like, just that you're not going to get this kind of a villain is not going to work in most movies, but because the subject matter and the the placement and everything is so just out there, like, you sort of can, can take that. There's another movie that was, um, it's not the same type of story as this, but it was called Doomsday. It came out in 2000. I want to say nine or eight, something like that. 2008 or 2009. Yeah, with Rona Mitra. And uh, it's got the same type of thing where you've got like these just crazy over-the-top villains because you need that. It's sort of to balance out the violence and the uh, silliness of just the, the entirety of the story being told. Let your villain just be completely kooky. And boy, Stuart Wilson jumps all over that. And I, like, I love him. I loved him in Hot Fuzz as Dr. Robert ha- Robin Hatcher. Yes. He's yes. he's great in that Mask of Zorro. Thank you, Denny. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, Hot Fuzz, one of my five favorite films of all time is Hot Fuzz. Absolutely. And, it's yes. You know, and and to have Stuart Wilson in that and and I mean he I mean he's been doing stuff forever. Um he's worked with Martin Campbell quite a few times and yes. uh he would have made I mean, a great Bond villain and Martin Campbell made two Bond movies. It's like, wait, you, you yeah. were supposed to do that. Why didn't you do that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't. I don't understand. But like, like you said, he's calculating the whole time, and that's what I loved about it. Is he's always got this wryness to him, and it's like silliness. It could. I could see some people being like, "All right, it's just too silly. It's too goofy." But I loved that about it. I loved the the silly, like over the top fake laughter, and like you said, it's. The visual of what Stuart Wilson is doing with the dreadlocks, with the piercings, with the Mad Max kind of costumes, and then he opens up his mouth and your brain has to stop for a second and kind of reconcile. Yes. Wait a minute. He's very like articulate, well-spoken, very smooth, <laughs> but he looks like he's got a rat's nest growing out of his head and he's wearing, you know, four-inch spike gloves. Like, it's just the weirdest thing. Yes. And you're right. It does make him feel... It's sort of the idea. There was a comedian years and years ago um, who had a joke where he was talking about uh, guys you wouldn't want to fight. He said, who, who would you be more scared to fight, Mike Tyson or Tom Arnold? And, <laughs> and he's like, I'd be, I would be much more scared to fight Tom Arnold because Mike Tyson is scary. Mike Tyson can hit you hard. Mike Tyson's going to beat the hell out of you. But you know what, you're, you know what he's going to do. This was prior to Mike Tyson going crazy and biting people's ears off. But he's like, he's trained. You don't know what Tom Arnold's going to do. He's coming at you like yeah, a spider monkey, it's, and it's, cre- it's creepy. It's and a pinata, and it's going to open up. <laughs> and I've actually met Tom Arnold, so I can honestly say 
there's there's like about a good 20 bucks I'd put on him first. And he was great. I, I met him at a Fanex uh, here, and he nice. was wonderful. But there is a little bit of that. You know, some people have, you know, I was in the military, and some people just have this gaze. It's almost like the thousand-yard stare where you're like, oh, no. oh, you think about things that would make so many of us just cry. <laughs> I'm just going to shake your hand and smile and leave. But, and that's that's the energy that Merrick gives you because – he he will do something crazy like in the movie where he dumps out he's he's walks up to all of the outsiders he's got this bag over his shoulder and he dumps it out and it's the heads yes. of all of the other gang leaders and then he's like i've been under a lot of stress lately and really what it comes down to is i just want to be in charge and it's like yeah. i'm not i'm not messing with that guy like fine be in charge you want it that bad okay um, so yeah, he, he is worth, he's worth watching this he's, movie for himself. He's wonderful. And it's, it's, I think one of the best things for me is in, in one of, in basically his opening scene. And it's one of those moments where he pits Ray Liotta's character against one of his fighters. And when it ends, he goes, extraordinary. Not exactly what I had in mind, but extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> I love that reaction. And that, that scene was great because that's your uh, your Indiana Jones scene, right? It's the big yes, guy with absolutely. the sword and Indy pulls out the gun and shoots him. It's that moment with this huge dude and Robbins just hucks the spear right into his throat and kills the guy instantly and just everybody stops. And, and they uh, go silent, like the whole scene. And even the theater goes. Yeah, you're not expecting it at all. They laugh. <laughs> and what's great about a scene like that is when it's used right, Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark did it. This movie did it. You see it. It's a trope. It's a, it's totally a tropey scene. But if you don't tip your hand to it, it works. And they didn't tip their hand to this. The way it was all set up, it just, it's such a good execution of that trope. And I loved it. Um, you really don't see it coming. And it's one of those things that's, like you said, it's become a trope. And there's a trope in here that, and, and we'll get to that a little bit, but there's a there's one weapon, technically, technological weapon, yeah. on the island. And it's basically a mini missile. Mm -hmm. And they point it at everybody, and I'm like, that's not how any of that works. And we see that in a lot of movies where they'll, they'll be carrying an RPG, and they'll point it at somebody in like a closed corridor. I'm like... <laughs> That won't you work. Don't, this is not Operation Wolf. That won't work. No, and you do, you don't want to be that close. You don't want to fire exactly. that thing off from from ten feet away. You, no. They pointed at everybody, and it's like here, and it's like, okay, is that a real threat? Or are you just trying to make them think you're crazy? <laughs> um, but yeah, Stuart Wilson, totally worth it. Lance Henriksen is the father. I mean, and this movie is full of those actors, those character actors you just love and stuff. Lance Henriksen is always good in everything he does. It doesn't matter if he's doing a great film or if he's doing some crap that, you know, he just did for a he's paycheck. Always a great he's presence. always, always. And I did read where, because, my, um, uh, why, uh, uh, Martin Campbell, I don't know why all of a sudden I couldn't think of Campbell. Martin Campbell is, uh, known for having a bit of a short fuse on set. And apparently Lance Henriksen didn't like that at first. Um, <laughs> And they didn't get along, but supposedly by the course, by the end of filming, they were like, they kind of mended the fences enough that they could laugh about it. But it was like early on, right. uh, it didn't work so well. And Lance Henderson is not somebody I would want angry with me. 
No, and he's always had, he kind of reminds me of Leota in a sense of having this intense look. Must be the blue eyes. But he has this intense look. He's kind of like, you know, he could stand still. Heck, Ray Leota and, you know, Lance Hendrickson, they just have this type of aura about them. They could be playing with Play-Doh, and they could be having a good time. And there's nothing out here. It'd be like a poker face. And then in your mind, you're like, He's thinking of hurting me like a lot. There's just this intensity. There's just something about them they exude. And even if they're as nice as can be, it's like, I, I don't, I don't want to shake your hand, you know. <laughs> and I think that's what's great about those type of actors, especially in the '90s, where you had you know, this was just at the tail end of '80s action heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, we had gotten not really gotten away from. I mean, I wouldn't say they got away, but they were kind of moving out a little bit. You know, this was 94. 95, we had Eraser, which was kind of Arnie's last big action shebang. And then 95, we also had Daylight, which was also one of Stallone's last, before he started kind of having this resurgence with um, The Expendables. Yeah. That was kind of one of his big action shebangs. And that was like a $95 million picture. Eraser was like $120 million. So you started seeing this kind of trailing off of those types as far as you know these kind of larger than life figures they were supposed to be playing like regular people mm-hmm. you know the only one i ever bought into 100 percent was bruce willis of course as in die hard like right you know he was john mcclain and it was just perfect and this is kind of around the time we started seeing more actors not necessarily you know these these 80s types that we had been used to for about a decade we started seeing actors kind of Sort of kind of uh, getting back or getting into movie roles. Ray Liotta, you know, I think he's perfect for the casting. He, as a casting director, he probably would have been a little low on my call sheet, but I mean, he's, he's fantastic here. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of nice to see him. And I'm trying to think of a few others off the top of my head, but there were so many actors that started kind of getting, started going a little more thinking man's, not to take away from, you know, my 80s action heroes who I grew up with, but you started getting more actors in these type of roles that you just didn't see normally cast at that point. Yeah, we were going, we were moving away from, and, and McLean, Bruce Willis's McLean was kind of the first one, but we were moving away mm-hmm. from the sort of superhuman, superhero character in a film that Arnold would play or Stallone would play or Seagal would be in his early movies. And we, would, we were transitioning into kind of more of an everyman action star. They were still action stars, but you were seeing they they were doing action movies. But you were seeing the Ray Liotas, Bruce Willis. Um, you might see uh, somebody. I mean, Jackie Chan was becoming known in the U.S. and and his style was so different from those other types of movies. So it was it was interesting, and I I did enjoy that. And Lance Henriksen to to kind of bring about come back to what you were saying about him with that intensity that he has. There are certain actors that are really good yellers and screamers. You're Sam Jackson's and Gene Hackman's who bring that intensity and can yell really well, and, and that's their intensity. Lance Henriksen and Ray Liotta are the type that don't have to yell to be intense, and you're just like, I'm sorry I've disappointed you, and I, I have failed you, sir. Like, Yes, I'm just going to move over here. Don't look at me. <laughs> yeah, like they get quiet, and you get scared. And like Henriksen just had – plus he's got like his face. He's just got a very weathered face. And he's always looked old. He has. He's <laughs> always looked like he's always looked like he was in his mid 40s and older. It didn't matter how old he was. 
He was 25 years old. He looked like he was 47, and he just keeps getting yeah. older and more like leather-like, and it's it's impressive. Yeah. But he's such a good presence. And the other thing too, and I what I like in a movie like this is to keep me guessing as to who who's on what side kind of thing. He is the father. He's the leader of the insiders, this sort of almost hippie-like group of uh, convicts who all get along. They're, and it, it's funny because this movie also has the trope of like, these people are all in prison, but we don't really get a backstory about most any of them, what they did to end up in the worst possible prison. Um, right. Like we know, we know Leota's story. And we, we learn the father's story, that he was a doctor whose wife cheated on him and then ended up dead. And, uh, you know, he claimed that it was suicide, but he was convicted of her murder and ends up in prison. Whatever he did in the maximum security prison to then get sent to Absalom. But he's there. But at the same time, like, you're always with Lance Henriksen, it could go either way. He could suddenly flip and, you know, be a bad guy as well. So you're just... You're just never a hundred percent sure, and I, I kind of I like that uh, every once in a while with yes. with a with a character, and Hendrickson just does that really well. Um, I mentioned Ernie Hudson as Hawkins, uh, the chief of security. Ernie Hudson always great, um, always great. The trivia was that he took this role because he wanted to get as far away from civilization as he could after making The Crow, and kind of yes. everything that happened with making that. And I guess he took his family with him uh, to um, wow. Australia when they were shooting. And it was supposed to be the dry season. And it mm. rained almost every day. <laughs> and so they just had to deal with the, like, being on a mud bog for the however long he was there. But Ernie Hudson is just fantastic, always. He, he almost always plays some, especially at this time, some variation of kind of the same character, like... And, and and that's not a bad thing. He's very good at that. But he, like, he has this sort of feel about him, like, uh, like he's the uncle that's always pulling for you, that's always like rooting for you, right? And he's, he's always had that great presence. Mm-hmm. And so I just I liked him there. Plus, when when you have somebody who's your head of security, they should be physically imposing, and that's a thing that you like. When you think of physically imposing actors, Ernie Hudson's name doesn't come to mind, but then you see him on screen. It's like, no, he can handle himself. Like, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't step up to him. Um, So, like, he was super fun. And then you start getting into some of these even smaller side characters. Uh, Ian McNeese as King. I love Ian McNeese. He is he's a, fantastic. He's a fantastic stage actor. He's a fantastic screen actor. I've loved him and everything. He was um, Baron Harkonnen in... Um, the uh, Sci-Fi Channel Dune series back in 2000. With William Hurt? Yep. yep. I loved him in that. Um, he would show up in uh, like Ace Ventura when nature calls so he can do comedy. And then he was in, uh, do you remember the movie with Michael Keaton, White Noise from 2004? He was in that. Uh, the one where they were tracking the, the ghosts. Yes. Okay, I remember that one. He was in that. <laughs> like he's He's great and he's usually doing these kind of character roles. And in this his role is kind of cool because he's the quirky one that like is always concerned about germs. And so that's his quirk. That's his thing uh, for, cause you know, a movie like this where it's set on an Island or it's set, you know, these kind of post-apocalyptic style things, there's always the, the quirky characters that you deal with throughout the movie. And he's that one He's everything's got to be clean and he's dealing. And then of course you find out later on kind of, he's not above board. Yeah. 
Um, mm-hmm. And he's a perfect one to do that with because when you see him for the first time on screen, you will in no way think that he could uh, be yes. a double agent. It was a great twist, even back then, where... And, and you know, movies like this, you know, we talk about tropes, and we kind of like some of them. We also know that, you know, scripts are, you know, one, two, three acts in most cases. Yeah. So you know something's kind of reeking in Denmark here, because especially with some of the stuff they do as far as testing, like, escape craft. I can honestly say, even back then, like, it was quite a turn, like, him? Yeah. Like, you, you, have, you have a bit of a moment where you're, like, kind of slapped around, like, oh, hit him. Yeah, and it's played well, really well, and it's it's not even played straight. Like, it's just done well enough to, he's there, he's there, he's there, he's the guy. And then it all kind of clicks, and you're like, mm-hmm. okay. For the, exactly <laughs> the same reasons that Lance Henriksen, you're always like, maybe he could be the bad guy too, we're not sure. The opposite is true of Ian McNeese. He just always seems very jovial, and he, he plays, like, with the exception of being Baron Harkonnen. Um, <laughs> but, like, he... When he's playing a character that's supposed to be likable and affable, you believe him completely. And so, but he, it was, you're right, the way they structured it, he was always around. And so then when it's revealed, you can think back like, oh yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. He was always kind of nearby. He knew what was going on oh. enough. So yeah, I liked him He was there. somewhere in the midst of it, but he wasn't like engaged. So yes. you kind of... He wasn't necessarily scenery, but he was an engaged enough character to where he was a part of the storyline. But you didn't necessarily go looking at him like the suspect. When it all kind of clicks, it's actually it's actually a solid re- or solid reveal. I was, I mean, even yeah. then, like I said, I was like, oh, okay, let me take the wool back over my eyes. Well done. Nice. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Jack Shepard was Dysert, who's. Uh, He's another one of those good stage actors, and I, I enjoyed him in this quite a bit. And he had the greatest glasses ever. True Coke bottle glasses. Yes. <laughs> they were so funny every time he'd put them on, but I just loved it. Um, Kevin J. O'Connor as Stefano. Benny. Benny is... <laughs> I Kevin J. O'Connor is in like every single... Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Stephen Summers. Yes, Stephen Summers movie. Yes. Uh, I love Kevin J. O'Connor because you know what you're getting from him, which is going to be something goofy. He's going to be he's going to play it silly. It's sort of like where you have Stuart Wilson really hamming it up. Kevin J. O'Connor is going to ham it up and and be that guy. And I liked him. I liked him here as Stefano, who's the he's like the the quartermaster, and he's got yes. all the stuff and the running gag of he wanted he kept wanting Robin's boots. <laughs> Sign them over to me. You don't want people fighting over them when you're dead. <laughs> Which, what I like about that is the first thing that happens. So, to kind of get off the the, um, we'll go on a little tangent here. But the first when when Robbins first gets dumped on the island, he's captured by the outsiders. They take him back to their camp, and the first thing they do is the guy with all the face tattoos and the sharpened teeth starts to take his boots. And Merrick stops him. So then when he gets to the insiders, it's a great joke where Stefano's like, "What? Well, you want to sign a contract over your boots? You can keep them for now. I don't need one. But when you die, when you inevitably die, then they can come to me. Yep. And it's just oh, it was so good. And I have to have to mention Don Henderson, who played Killian, who was the brewmaster for, for the group, um, because 
even if you don't recognize the name, and even if you're watching this movie, I'm watching it and I'm like, I know this face. I know who this guy is, but he's a little bit older. He's almost 20 years older than the last time I had seen him in a movie that I could remember, like, consciously. And he is the Imperial officer in the first Star Wars movie that gets choked out by Vader during the staff meeting. He's the yes. he's the one that talks back and Vader chokes him. And, and I was like, that's who that is. And and it's it, oh, it was so cool to see him. And like he's been in a bunch of he's been in episodes of Doctor Who. He um he did uh, Red Dwarf. Um but this was oh, one of the Red last Dwarf. things he did. Uh he sadly passed away shortly after this. But but what a fun character to play. He's playing him. He's got one arm, which is mentioned it's never said. It's kind of it, I kind of like how it's it's like a thing and you notice it, but it's never brought up. They don't they don't say like, yeah, you know, he lost his arm. They don't give you any exposition about it. He just only has the one arm. He makes the right. the comment that he'll beat the hell out of him with only one arm. But that's it. It's <laughs> never mentioned again, and I kind of like stuff like that. That's that's fun sort of makes it feel like a real world being lived in. When something like that happens, we don't need exposition to know that this guy lost his arm for whatever reason. He just doesn't have it. Um, right. And so, so it's kind of nice to think about how it might have happened, like to kind of just mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes, you know, that 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 mystery is kind of there just fun, because one of the first things when you see characters like that, obviously, they're very striking. But one of the first things, obviously, is it doesn't have an arm and then you can't help but do even though, even when they're not on no longer in the scene or on the screen, it's like. Or how that happened, and it, you you kind of play yeah. with that a little bit. Sometimes movies like to throw that in. Yeah, and what I like about it is it's a form of world building that gives your character mm-hmm. some some sort of an intriguing story, without having to tell a story. You know, and and it's done through he only has the one arm or some sort of costume, like the guy that I mentioned that tries to take Robin's boots right away. He's got tattoos all over his face. His teeth are sharpened to points. You know. Was this a thing that happened to him pre going to prison po- or or in prison? Did it not happen until he got on the island? How long has he been on the island? Because he's obviously pretty high strung, and according yeah. to Merrick, the <laughs> average life expectancy on the island is only six months. So how long has this dude been here? Yeah. Like yeah. we and don't Merrick's know. been there seven years. Yeah. So there's there's all sorts of fun <laughs> stuff there, but it's such a great just mix of of fun character actors in these scenes and they're playing out all the tropes and the movie is very tropey and it's, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that we have seen before, but it does bring some of its own twists and its own flavor to things. You know, Ray Liotta, he's stuck on the Island. He wants off the Island and he doesn't give a reason till like the last act why he's so intent on getting off the island. We don't know his backstory, any of that. We've come to find out that, you know, he definitely he he um, had to run a mission while he was in the army in um, Lebanon and uh, Beirut, right? I think. Um, if memory serves, yeah, yeah, I think so. But he he ran a mission where they killed an entire village. Uh, probably on bad intelligence, but it was women and children. He felt bad about it. They covered it up, so he killed his commanding officer. Like, he has no remorse over the killing of his commanding officer, but he's he's suffering from the PTSD of all these innocent people that he killed just by following orders. And so 
he won't follow any orders. Any order anybody gives him in this movie, he like goes against. Right. Um, he, he also loves to shun authority, and that's yes. what kind of makes the character so great. <laughs> yeah. He also spends a lot of the movie staring past the camera and breathing heavily. I noticed that. Like, yes. <laughs> especially the first third of the movie is a lot of, and I like to call those the, um, the when it's staring past the camera like that, it's that Steven Spielberg shot. Because Spielberg yes. always has shots of somebody looking past camera and reacting yes. to something behind that. And like he did that a lot, but it was also with this very heavy breathing because he just got done sprinting for his life. Um, right. <laughs> and I mentioned how the movie kind of had a thing where you don't really understand exactly how much time has passed because early on in the movie, he gets injured to the point where he can't walk. Um, which, by the way, switched legs. I don't know if you noticed that. If you've ever noticed that. I did not. The first, the first time when he gets his leg cut and he grabs, like, rips off part of his shirt to tie it off, it's his right oh. leg. But later on, his left leg I is the one that's that. injured and has the wound on it. I it was weird. I'm like, did they? Did I? I <laughs> eh, whatever. Because he also got hit with, like, a, an arrow in that leg, too. So I don't know. Maybe it was. He did, yes. <laughs> he got, look, he, he got beat up. He got better. <laughs> But, did. Yes. but you don't have a sense of like how long did it take him to to heal from that. And he's he's there for a good amount of time because he's there long enough to get to know all of these people right. fairly well. Um, so it would have been nice to have just a little bit of a sense of like time. But at, at the same time, you don't really need it because the story is very simple. It's just like they want to and, and he wants to get off the island. Uh, Merrick wants control of the entire island. Uh, mm -hmm. Lerner has control of the entire island and wants to keep everything quiet about what's on there. So we just keep cutting right. back to him, like looking at monitors of of heat maps and things, hoping that nobody can yes. find out what's going on. Um, and the insiders just want to live their life. They're just all kind of convict hippies oh. making uh, yeah. making moonshine and uh, weaving their own clothes. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you do. Yep. <laughs> but then I like where they throw in the subplot of they're trying to figure out a way to get off the island with sort of a, almost like a stealth boat and it keeps failing. And at first they can't quite figure out why it's failing, but they, they just know something's not right. And then that's when you learn that King is like, he's a, he's a double agent and he's relaying information. Plant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which did lead to the, the saddest moment of the movie, which is so, Oh, um, I love to, the trope of like we have a thing but we're missing the one part and the hero yes. of the movie happened to see that one part early it in the just movie so happens what's yes. great is watching it the second time because the first time i'm like oh yeah yeah he did see that thing watching it the second time i'm like they're spending a lot of time showing him pick up that distributor and like look at it and then put it back down yes and he touches maybe that'll basically be nothing later. else it's like ooh, foreshadow foreshadow um but yeah, they've got this V8 engine they're going to put in a boat, but he doesn't have a distributor <laughs> cap. And Leota's like, you know, I saw one of those. I can go get it for you. And it's funny like, you should mention that. Yeah. So it's Distributor uh, cap ex machina. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's a, it gives him the, the reason to go back to Merrick's camp, which also gives yes. us a reason to still have Merrick's camp around. Like, because there's a, long, there's a long stretch of the movie where you sort of forget about them. It's like... Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. The outsiders are still a thing and they're like dangerous. Um, yes. So yeah. Uh, and I love where he goes back and he gets that and like, now here's, here's the thing with this movie. Here's what makes this movie work. We've talked about the cast and the cast is great. 
Absolutely. The story, fine. Nothing wrong with it at all. I, I'm a sucker for this type of movie. So, you know, I love Escape from New York. I even like Escape from L.A., Fortress is super fun. <laughs> Fortress would be Fortress is this movie, but it's all set in that level six maximum security prison, right? That's Fortress, and this is like, well, what if Fortress was on an island? Yep. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, but I, I'm a sucker for those kinds of movies because you can just turn your brain off and enjoy the spectacle that they are. But what makes them work is to have a director that knows how to do things visually, and Martin Campbell can do that. And Martin Campbell has a little bit of an up and down track record with how good his movies are. Um, Green Lantern. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? Well, (laughs) Green Lantern. Sorry. (laughs) So, and it's funny because like, this is a guy who is responsible for two of my favorite James Bond films, hands down. And twice kind of reinvigorating that franchise. With GoldenEye and Casino Royale. Those are both great. Absolutely. Um, He also directed not only the movie, but the original TV series in in England of Edge of Darkness, which is really good. like Edge of Darkness. I had never seen the TV series. I had heard that it was from that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, that movie is... uh... It's it's well done. Absolutely well done. And very heartbreaking. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so it was a six-episode miniseries um, that he did back in the mid-'80s. Um, but, like, he, so he kind of got his start with sort of TV miniseries and TV stuff and, and moved into movies. But then he gets into movies, and he makes um, this, and the very next year is Goldeneye. He makes The Mask of yep. Zorro. Uh, vertical Limits, eh, kind of okay. But then he comes back with, you know, a few years later, it's Legend of Zorro, uh, and then Casino Royale. Green Lantern's not great. All right. Some of No, and it I, made me sad. <laughs> I don't know how much of it is fully his fault. He's he's at fault because he directed it, but there's I'm sure there was some sort of like DC wanted certain things there, but what I will say is that outside of the um going fully CG for the Green Lantern costume that just it wasn't quite there to do what the look they were going for. Visually, the movie's not awful in terms of action sequences. Um, Because if there's one thing that Martin Campbell can do, it is direct action. And direct action on set with practical effects. Because Goldeneye has some great action set pieces. This movie has some amazing action set. The whole fight that takes place, the the action scene where the outsiders show up and raid the the camp, because it happens twice. Both of those look so good, one at night and one during the day. And I love when a movie does that because I don't want all my action sequences to look, you don't want them all to look the same. So have one at night, you can hide a few things, you can do a little bit more, and then you do this one during the day. And they pulled out none. Of, they pulled out all the stops, like those explosions. Oh yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. And normally it's the oh well they should have been using that gasoline based paint on everything, but here <laughs> they literally had a character whose whole job it was was to make jet fuel for them to drink, and so they just put that all over the camp and blew it up. And I it was it looked so good. All of like Martin Campbell when he's doing stuff in camera. It looks so good, and he does a great job, too, 
of staging everything so that you kind of know what's going on. You don't get lost in the action. Um, He's very good with the geography in action, and he knows how to set up a camera. And and worked with uh, Terry Rawlings on this, and he also did with uh, Goldeneye. And that man also in the editing room, he's just able to really piece together action that flows so well. He has geography down as far as because it's never something blows up here. Wait, that guy wasn't there. He's he's so great. And when I saw with Lantern, it was kind of one of those things where, okay, I'm hoping. And I saw it and I didn't hate it. I think it was terrible, but I didn't think it was great. And it was kind of one of those is like. It, but it's his name. You still have that correlation, you know, knowing what this guy's body of work has been to this point. You still have that moment of, uh, he's fantastic. He's he's still making movies, um, and he's yeah. phenomenal. And Green Lantern, so here here's my quick backstory of Green Lantern. So I watched the movie. I knew Ryan Reynolds was in it. That was it. I'm just like, ah, Green Lantern. All right. I turn it on. I start watching it. I didn't see it in theaters. When it ended, and it said, I, because there weren't opening credits, that I remember. So I didn't, they didn't have a directed by opening credit. So when it ended and it said directed by Martin Campbell and I was like, really? But he's good. <laughs> yes. He he makes good. What, what happened? Like, how did this happen? Because yep. by this point in my life, I knew who Martin Campbell was and it just, it blew my mind because I'm like, he, wait, but he made Casino Royale like not that long ago. It was just yeah. so weird, but he, Oh man. That it's it's those directors that can do a certain thing. Like, say what you want about um, you know, uh, um, man, names just are are going right out my <laughs> right out of my brain tonight. Um, Transformers. Uh, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Bayham. <laughs> I I need I think more caffeine is the problem. Amen. Always. But say what you want about Michael Bay. When it comes to making action look good and dynamic, he can capture your eye. Now, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. He gets a little over-reliant on it, but he's very good at that. And Martin Campbell is very good at that. You, the geography of the action is always important to me. Um, I remember seeing, I think it was either, I want to say it was Clash of the Titans, the remake. Um, okay. Clash of the Titans. And one of my problems with it was there were action scenes where I got completely lost. I'm like, wait, who's where and what's happening now? And didn't this start out in the daylight, but now it's nighttime? Like, did this action yes. scene take five hours? And, like, I never feel that with a Martin Campbell directed action sequence when I'm watching Absolutely. this. He's Golden amazing. Eye. Gold, Eye, I love. And not only that, but great stunts, too. He seems to like uh, having stunts with people falling, like great distances. Because that waterfall jumped... fall in uh, No Escape is fantastic. Oh, it, it, looked so good. Mm -hmm. it looked really, really good. And that good. was actually done with a pulley system that they kind of rigged up. They they thought about the shot and storyboarded, of course, but it was one of those things where how they actually ended up doing it was so the steady cam operator is being lowered at the same time as the free fall. And I've seen like first look and stuff like that. So I've seen what it looked like. And there's this part of me that goes, Hey, what NASA scientist did you get to go <laughs> if the steady cam operator is falling at this speed and terminal velocity is roughly 120-ish miles an hour? And it looks fantastic because there's that scene where he he's falling and the camera, and there's a quick cut, so it's a little bit of a bummer. He's falling and the camera turns, and then you still see like 
oh, he's still got more falling to do. <laughs> yeah. And it looks fantastic. And there's a, like I said, there's a little bit of a quick cut to, I want to say a further back shot, but it is one of those things where, um, you know, only certain directors, and this was 94. This is before we started having really, not just CGI, but having the level of computer technology where um, the computers were kind of running the cameras. You know, obviously directing and storyboarding was still important, but you didn't have it yet where you were going to have this computer rig do this. You still had to do a lot of things, you know, man-made, and you had to get a guy crazy enough, you know, somewhere in Queensland, like, all right, mate, I'll sit in the steady cam and follow it down. <laughs> right, and that that is a thing that uh, that you don't think about with action sequencing is it's not just the stunt crew that has to be a part of that, but when you're doing something that dynamic of a shot, that camera crew's got to be part of it too, which is... Absolutely. I will occasionally kind of uh, give James Cameron a little guff just for like not writing the most intelligent stories, but I will never doubt his ability to make a visually engaging film. And he is also not afraid to grab the camera and get right in there and be the cameraman either. And a lot of respect for that because I feel like directors get a lot of respect, cinematographers do, but cameramen don't always. They're, they're unsung. You never hear about them. And I think of shots like in the Bourne uh, Ultimatum where they were steady camming it and the, the you had to have Matt Damon and or his stunt double jump that alley from one window to the other. Yes. But you had mm -hmm. to have the cameraman like, doing that right behind him with the camera rig on. <laughs> so Absolutely. When, shots like that I love. And and that was a the, that free fall in this. And then a year later, Martin Campbell sets up and does that great stunt on the dam at the beginning of GoldenEye yes. with the guy, yes. not in a free fall the same way, but he is because he's bungee jumping. And it's such right. an amazing, uh, that one, that is a stunt for me that is burned into my memory because I saw that in theaters. And so sitting yes. there watching that stunt happen in a theater at yes. that time was just amazing. And, then, and so now to watch this and see he did a very similar stunt the year before in another movie and it's like all right this guy knows what he's doing like and it's such a cool looking thing and there's so many of those in this it's a lot of fun this this movie what it is is it's fun it's sad that it didn't do well at the box office at all it was a bomb um <laughs> it barely made back its budget <laughs> It barely made back its budget, and its budget was $20 million. It was not a big-budget film. You know, it, it sets itself up for, okay, immediately at a $20 million budget, Stallone and Schwarzenegger are out. You're not going to get them anyway. But I think, I, I wonder if in the marketing, having Ray Liotta as your lead at the time hurt it. Because nowadays, more audience... Uh, members are willing to give an actor a chance if they haven't seen him do an action film necessarily. Right. But I feel like at that time, maybe we were like Ray Liotta. Wait, what? It's sort of like, think of the Batman and Robert Pattinson. And so many people only think of him as, you know, Twilight, but right. they were willing to give it a chance. And yes. he's amazing in the Batman. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like, like Leota, there were probably too many people that were like, the dude from Goodfellas, he's going to be an action movie? Like, what is this? <laughs> but it works, and he's good in it. And I, I just think that Absolutely. maybe that hurt the movie at the time. Um, 
and sort I could of those... see that with the case. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you you go. Um, I could see that a little bit, not just because he was. So he had a string of movies just after this, and and or after Goodfellas, I should say. And it was one of those cases of okay, he got discovered because he was um, in something wild from Jonathan Demi right before he was with in Goodfellas, mm-hmm. and um, he started having kind of a string of movies. He did um, right after this. He did a, a movie that I love, and I think did fine in the box office. But it's a wonderful little gem called Unlawful Entry with mm-hmm. uh, Kurt Russell, Madeline Stowe, and him. And it's basically this cop that stalks and terrorizes this this couple that he's become obsessed obsessed with, especially the wife. And you know, like most actors, when they strike fire, you know, they take as many roles as they can. They capitalize on it, which they should. But certainly in the case here, don't think he had entirely got to that point yet where he was solidified as like, okay, he's an A-lister or whenever he might have been cast. It wasn't necessarily like people were going to go out to see just a Ray Liotta movie. Yeah. And I think that might have... I don't want to say hurt it because I think he's great in it. I just hate the fact that so many people missed out on it. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because he he was very busy through the 90s and into the early 2000s, but he wasn't quite the draw that he became in right. the, the mid-2000s and then the 2010s. Because you look at some of the stuff he did, like Turbulence, uh, but Copland, yes. I love Copland, and he's great in Copland. Oh, yes. Um, and then you see him kind of popping, you know, popping up in things like Hannibal and Heartbreakers before narc narc is another one underrated if you haven't Narc's seen that. amazing oh my god i love you had narc. to mention narc. it's wonderful and that's know, and and if you wanted to do like a highlight reel and like memoriam to ray Liotta, who i was always a fan of and i actually got weepy when i heard that he died he was one of those that um i'm not necessarily saying he was exactly like this character but he reminded me kind of like george kennedy where you know every time you see him he's gonna add something and he's gonna be and I hate to call the guy, I hate to call Ray Liotta a character actor because he was so much more than that. But it was kind of like George Kennedy where like, well, you knew he was a great mainstay. He wasn't going to be somebody who just was like there for the camera. He was always going to be entertaining and involved in the, in the character and just somebody you know you wanted to go see. You didn't necessarily go, oh, the new Ray Liotta movie was out, but knowing he was in it mm-hmm. helped kind of bring that about. Yeah, I, and that's where I think I feel as though he was a little underrated in that rate in that way because he wasn't you know oh here's a new Denzel Washington movie or here's you know this <laughs> this uh, he but he he always brought something and he made movies he was in he elevated them to something that they were better better Absolutely. than they should have been. I also think this is the type of movie that we don't get enough of anymore, which is the mid-budget action movies. These days, an action movie is either going to be crazy over-the-top budget or it's going to be something really low-budget schlocky. Yes. <laughs> and you don't get... like this, this fits right in the middle of that. At, at the time, in 1994, a $20 million film, because we hadn't... Mm-hmm. What was... Uh, was Waterworld 95, I think? And that was like $100 million. Yeah, and that was a $100 million budget. And that was that was huge. That was a big, 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 big thing. Um, right. And this, but this isn't your like. They don't because obviously they had money. the The way that the effects and um, the look of everything was, it doesn't look cheap. 
But I feel like that's a kind of a lost film. Nowadays, if it's an action film, it's going to be one or the other. They're going to go super low budget and kind of play it tongue in cheek, or they're going to go really high budget and blow everything out. And even if it's a Netflix original or or something like that. And I kind of miss the mid budget ones a little bit because that mid budget type of like hot fuzz is that same thing, right? It's sort of a mid budget action film. That's kind of the last one I can really think of, of that ilk where it's not over the, it it is over the top. It is silly, but it's also kind of a high concept thing. It's a little sci-fi. Um, and I think some of that was, you know, you mentioned eraser and it's like, that was kind of the last of the Arnold movies, even though he kept doing stuff up through like end of days and things. But by that point they were, almost self-parody yes and i just i just miss this type of movie where we're going to take a especially the sci-fi angle of it we're going to take kind of a high concept sci-fi thing give it a decent enough budget to look good uh put some great character actors in there so that you believe in all these characters and just have fun with it but not it doesn't have to be a satire or it like um uh, what was the one with Ben Stiller and um, Jack Black? Uh, Thunder. Like Thunder. Yeah, Tropic Thunder. Like Tropic Thunder yes. can be that, but it's also meant to be a satire of these kinds of movies. And right. I just sort of miss like the straightforward, we're just going to do this and we're g- it's going to be silly and we're going to have fun with it. But yes. um, they kind and of it, got relegated to direct to video, I think is what ended up happening. They did, and especially when, you know, because there was a time, and, I, and I'm so glad this movie got a theatrical release, even though people missed it. There was a time where, you know, because everything now is available through streaming, and I remember far enough back to where if you were somebody like John Travolta, who had a movie called The Professionals with Ari Gross, and he, you know, Tra- Travolta was still Travolta, but it was one of those things where your career was pretty much done and over with if you had something that, was like it, it had your face on the, uh, the cassette cover. You knew it wasn't in the theater. And it was kind of one of those, you know, at the time it wasn't necessarily considered um, legit, I guess you could say, for certain actors. Because it, yeah. had kind of, it had kind of told people where their career had gone. And, um, you know, now everything's streaming. And I think that's why, especially movies like this, would turn into self Parody. And I think it's a lot of it's because it's like, if you like this, you're going to like this. And one thing that's great about this movie, particularly No Escape, is that in so many ways, yes, it, it, it connects to other science fiction movies and it was produced by Gail Ann Hurd and, you know, her, her credentials are stellar. But it is kind of one of those things where, yeah, you're not going to see a ton of these like this anymore. And I think one thing that's great about this movie, Mad Max, kind of that mid-budget, even um, Hot Fuzz, is they knew how to use what was around them. Like Mm -hmm. the people who photographed this stuff really understood not just where to place the camera, but like what they were surrounded by. Because I think this has a little bit of connectivity, a little harken to um, Mad Max, because you have here this island, and you know know how to photograph it, and if you know how to kind of what the set should be, and really know how to take in what's around them. Same thing with Mad Max, because you literally have a desert. Mm-hmm. It's photographed in such a way where it feels not only so foreboding, but of course, endless. And I think that's one thing that's definitely missed now with 
been trying to do something that would be a mid-budget action movie. Because when they're big budget nowadays, not only do they blow everything up, you don't even connect to the surroundings or the actors. Because a lot of it is now green screen and tennis balls. <laughs> yeah, that's true as well. Um, I just I just miss these kinds of movies. And you're thank you for bringing up Gale Ann Heard because... The the one thing the movie doesn't have at all is there's not a single woman in the movie. Um, right. I get it from the sense of it's a prison. Um, so I sort of understand that. And if they were going to do it, it would end up being some kind of a token thing. And it would have been would have right. been really bad. But there's there's not a single woman in the entirety of this film. But it's produced by Galeon Heard and mm-hmm. one of the better producers out there. I mean, the, she just just produces some amazing stuff right up through under the, you know, she's still producing walking dead. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, just, just great. And so I wanted to, I'm glad you brought her name up because she's fantastic. (laughs) You know, she, she's responsible for helping produce things like, uh, aliens. Um, what were some of the, I mean, this, during this era, it was the Terminator and aliens. Those were a couple of her first films she produced, uh, before going on. Uh, she, She, she was involved with James Cameron for a few years with the abyss. Uh, she was married to him actually. Well, yeah, yeah, she yeah. was, um, Terminator two, but like she keeps going on and just, it's just amazing stuff that she did. Um, so, um, thank you for bringing her up. Uh, yeah, she's always been phenomenal and, and she's one of those producers. I mean, of course there's many producers we know throughout the movie business. I've always felt like she was one of those that really kind of not just got, Endems, but also kind of knew how to um, kind of work around a lot of this stuff. Because, you know, as a producer, a lot of it is problem solving, but also knowing what the goal is. And I've always believed, you know, so many things she's made, and like many producers, they don't always, they don't always become home runs. But so many of the stuff she does is really like, she knows where she's trying to get to, and she knows the audience. Yeah, and she gets people that fit to the movie that's being made. You. I just watched recently for fun Punisher Warzone, which a lot of people either don't remember <laughs> existed or kind of it got heavily panned by the critics. But I feel like it's a good movie for what it is because it didn't try to be anything more than it was. And Gail Ann Heard exactly was involved in that, just like she was involved in, uh, you know, Aeon Flux and The Punisher and Hulk and like all the Clock Stoppers is another one. She she yes. knows the movies she's trying to make, and she gets people involved in those movies that that know what they're trying to do, and so I I very much appreciate that. Um, and another thing that uh, that a movie like this gives us um, that I always appreciate is wonderful wonderful sound clips because there's so many good things <laughs> in a cheeseball '90s action movie like this. That that is just great, um, and I have some stuff Absolutely. I want to play. I got some stuff I got to play for you because, um, like I mentioned, how Ray Liotta's character he plays him so just straightforward and just like angry. And one of the first things he says is when Michael Lerner is talking to him and he turns around and walks away, and he turns back around and he says, "Do you have anything else you want to say?" And he he just looks at him dead in the eyes, and it's that Ray Liotta stare, and just says, "Was there anything you wanted to add?" Don't ever turn your back on me again. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to. And if you're in a room, I'm going to back out of that room. I will make sure I yes. always have eye contact. <laughs> I always have a sight line on you. 
have my danger whistle. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> Just to have that line in a maximum security prison. Like, that's confidence. Like, I've never seen your manhood, but you must trick it around in a wheelbarrow. Like, how great. Yeah. And what's great, too, is he plays that line so straight. And he's in this max prison surrounded by these guards who are armed to the tonsils. And it's like he he not only gets away with the line, even though he does go to the island, but he gets away with the line in the sense of, wow, he meant that. Like, literally, it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, I'm not going to mess with this guy. <laughs> yeah, and the warden immediately, like, recognizes that, too, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I like this exchange between him and Casey, Kevin Dillon's character. Most of these cons can't even read. I can't. What, fly a chopper? No, read. <laughs> and uh, another thing that Leota does really well, and there's the, the gif that uh, from, it's a gif from Goodfellas where he just bursts out laughing. He's got That's a great way of having those short bursts of like a ton of energy in uh, what he's doing without it being angry acting. And uh, so when... When Merrick is offering him the position, the the job with the group, and he just says, "Promise to hire another lifeguard." <laughs> I just that made me laugh so much. Uh, what is? I don't remember what uh, this one was. It's called Lucky. Let's see what this is. You're lucky you can't do it. That's right. Oh yes, that was a good moment where because he at this point Robbins knows that Casey doesn't belong with these with these cons and with these criminals. Right. And Casey just wants to help. And he's like, I got to kill a bunch of people while I do this. You haven't done that before. Yeah. You're lucky. You can't do it. And that's, yeah. that's that unfolding. We still don't know his full backstory yet. The, the backstory right. of Robbins. We haven't heard, but that gives us a little more insight into him. And that's the kind of thing that again, Leota is really, was really good at doing that. Yes. Um, most of the rest of them are Merrick. Honestly, I could have captured just everything oh, yeah. that dude said because <laughs> it was so great. Like, so this one's called Seven Years. That really isn't necessary. I mean, the average life expectancy here is what? Six months. I've been here seven years. And it's that it's that change in his in his face. And he's like, he's, yes, he's proud of that fact. But he's also he's got that wry yeah, smile. It's a badge of honor. Oh, yeah, so good. <laughs> What's funny is that he's meant to be like really intimidating and yet Robbins just wipes the floor with him anytime they, they fight. <laughs> like it's not even a contest. Um, but I just, I loved it anyway. Uh, let's see. Oh, I love the way he says this. Our director of aquatic activities, aquatic activities. Once yep, again, that was just, always just a jolting moment that, yeah, it's like yeah, you, you, you look like, you know, you, you've got, you, know, you look like you've got a, a string of priors that, you know, would print out on a dot matrix printer and just destroy it, you know, because it was the 90s. And then he talks and it's like, so the first lesson on quantum <laughs> yeah. energy is, and it was jarring, but this was also one of those moments. And I don't even think we get good villains necessarily characters like that anymore to where they're, they're engaging to look at. And then they throw you curveballs and you get more engaged. And it's always dicey, like on set. You know, he obviously Martin Campbell did a great job with the casting, but I'm kind of wondering if some people were looking on set at the time going. Oh yeah. They had sure? to have been, like 
Yeah. And you know, it's the Mad, the Mad Max comparisons can continue because it's kind of like the Lord Humongous, where here's this That's... giant bodybuilder in the hockey mask and like leather briefs, and then he grabs the microphone, and starts talking, and he's articulate, and you're like, whoa, That's... wait a second, this something here doesn't uh, add up. Um, he's scary, and then it's like, where did you go to finishing school? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mentioned this one earlier, but this was be in charge. I really want to be in charge. It's like. <laughs> Been under he's a so, lot of stress. He's so earnest <laughs> about it, too. Yeah. I've been under a lot of stress lately. Like, it shouldn't be intimidating, but it's the mixture of that voice coming out of the dude with dreads down to his, you know, his shoulder blades that... So much unexpectedness, and I think that's why that kind of, you know, it, it really feels between the voice and the delivery and the look, like it feels so square peg, round hole. Mm -hmm. And then because it is just so unexpected, I think it just, I think it just lends to the concept of this guy is volatile in a way that even he may not necessarily know how to bend his head around. Like yeah. you don't know where he's coming from. Maybe he doesn't either. Just give him a wide berth when he walks down the street. Just let him go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. This one was... That's extraordinary. It's not exactly what we had in mind, but uh, extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, uh, so great. I got a couple more here. I, I, I always am a sucker for um, when you get a character who will do some sort of a, you know, welcome or they'll or the trope of doing like welcome and uh, or hello in multiple languages. Like I love I love in uh, The World's End. Where Simon Pegg's yes. character sitting on the couch, he's all he's man spreading, and he's just bienvenue, welcome, and welcome. Stuart Wilson does it here, <laughs> and now that I've seen this movie, I feel like they wrote that into the world's end as an homage yes. to this film. <laughs> Bonjour, guten tag, welcome. <laughs> and the way he says well, <laughs> welcome, so good. Um, I'm very also, Karloff, very, very yes. Lugosi. Well, oh, um. <laughs> man, Karloff, that's perfect. I am also, so I'm a sucker for that. And I'm a even bigger sucker for fake laughter and like those forced yeah. laughs. And if this isn't one of the best, like this is a Nick cage level forced fake laugh. And it's after he cut the guy's head off. Um, yes, because we haven't seen, so at this point, we've we haven't seen the outsiders for a little while, and we cut back to them. Like, hey, don't forget these guys still exist. And uh, the guy with all the facial tattoos that we mentioned earlier talks back, and so you get the trope of like starting to walk away and then turn around and attack him, and he cuts his head off. And after the head falls off, you just get <laughs> that might be my new favorite fake laugh. It's, it's just, a good <laughs> oh, it's so, yes. Like, you know, I'm sitting there and I get a new text message and it's just. <laughs> so that's going on my soundboard. Uh, I'm going to have that. Oh, now. That's so awesome. when something crazy happens. Ringtone. Oh, it's so yeah. good. Just walk to a Lego <laughs> store and just that goes off. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, this one, uh, is, I couldn't help but capture this because it's this clip the thing that makes it the best is the very end of it. And what do you do? You turn around, you made a fucking horse's ass out of me. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> it's, 
that shouldn't work. I shouldn't laugh at that, but it's so good because the delivery. I hate it when that happens. Yep. <laughs> it's oh, I it's love it. It's just so great. Yeah. So there should have been a prequel movie of yes. Merrick. <laughs> Merrick, I want the story of Merrick. Um he's one of the biggest ones, like you were you were saying that you know, there's little here's and there's there's little breadcrumbs about, well, you know, this is how this person ended up here, and they kind of touch on some of this stuff. As far as like an out and out void, and I and and that's probably another just piece, you know, that ambiguity, that that piece of that character where you don't know where he's coming from and, and you know, just that, that kind of nervousness, that volatility, just looking at him because you don't know what could happen. But then you're kind of like, where did that turn? Like, yeah. where did that go wrong? <laughs> what happened? Who hurt you? I need to know. Yes. Like, and, and I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of a characterization or a character where I want to know more. And there's a big difference between I want to know more and they don't give us enough. Like there's oftentimes characters where you're just like, I don't know enough about that character to care. And in this, yeah, I don't know anything about Merrick other than he's insane and he's very well-spoken and he will do whatever because he wants to be in charge. But you want to know more. Like you want to hear the back, like, okay, I, I fully understand why he is here. But how did he get here? What happened to bring him here? Yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, I love that. This movie is just, it's fun. It's its a silly, park your brain at the door, mid-90s action movie. You're going to get great-looking stunt work, a story that sort of makes sense, but doesn't really matter. Um, right. And your bad guys get their comeuppance. It is violent. I will say that. Um, right. <laughs> but... Uh, it's worth it. I think if you are a fan of, uh, especially sci-fi action, check this one out. If you like uh, movies with Christopher Lambert, or uh, which I mean, th- this could have easily been Christopher Lambert in this movie. I could Absolutely. have seen that. That could have worked actually. Um, but like that, just that kind of movie. Those those mid-budget. It's not the super low-budget like Cyborg uh, with John Claude Van Damme. But it, oh, cyborg. <laughs> it's sort of Van Damme. Like, I understand why they why they would have offered this to Van Damme, because this feels right in his wheelhouse with that sort of hard Absolutely. target, uh, mm-hmm. um, sudden death, like that that era of movie that we just don't see as much anymore, or at least not as well known. They're out there, I'm sure. Um, right. But there's something about this, like the the not straight to video versions, because straight to video once you hit sort of mid nineties and into like the early 2010s, that straight to video, then straight to streaming for a long time was that death mark. It was, yeah, it was a junkyard for some, it was like, here yeah. you go. Like, <laughs> and, and you would get a lot of not even B list movie actors, but sort of like stuntmen that could talk and enough to put them in front of the camera, but maybe they weren't quite good enough. The thing with a movie like this is, the level of acting from Ray Liotta and Lance Henriksen and Ian McNeese and Ernie Hudson elevates it to something that's more watchable. Absolutely. So I definitely think it's worth it. And thank you for uh, bringing it to me because my pleasure, super fun. It's, it's going in my, this is a gem of mine. It's, it's one of those that it's, it's, I know knowing so many people and thank you so much for having me on. 
you know, and especially talking about this movie that I've always been jaded about. And, you know, I bring it to a lot of people's attention and either they never heard of it or they might have heard bits and pieces of it. And one thing, one funny fact we talked about a little bit was this actually had a couple of home video games. They had a Sega Genesis game and a Super NES game for this movie. And it was like, wait, huh? Is this like the E.T. thing again with the game? And this is one of those movies that's just a wonderful little gem that I kind of keep close to my heart. I remember watching it in the theater. I think I saw it three times with some friends of mine when I was growing up and stuff. And because growing up in Hawaii, you know, such a great outlet to kind of, not necessarily the outside world. It's not like, you know, we didn't have technology, but, you know, being on an island, like certain things just don't click the same way when you live in other parts of the world. Sure. So this was one of those movies that really was like, Oh, this is, you know, this is something that's, that's kind of out there. And I think in many ways, it's, it's one of those that when I was growing up, it kind of made me more interested in, in cinema in its own way, because my father was a huge fan of the time during the seventies and eighties, where there was a lot of knockoffs of Mad Max. And there was Mm -hmm. this huge string of these movies that, because this was during the Cold War and there was all this back and forth between yep. the USSR and America. So there was a string of these type of movies that were knockoffs of Mad Max. And then they knocked off each other in a weird way. Yep. And there was just a slew of them. And I think what kind of attracted me to this movie in the first place is that it reminded me a little bit of that because he would rent a ton of them. In, in so many ways, outside of like the first Terminator and stuff, so many of them were like the same. I felt like I was watching the same movie over and over again. And they would have like, you know, Fred Williamson and all these soap opera actors. This is kind of what drew me to this. And then seeing it in the theater, it was like, oh, this is better than that. <laughs> <laughs> this is that, but better. It, this, you know what this reminds me of is one of my favorite movies and my all-time favorite buddy cop movie is Running Scared hmm. with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. Peter Himes movie. Peter Himes directed. I absolutely adore that. I quote it like pretty much daily. It is it is easily (laughs) one of my ten favorite films I've ever seen in my lifetime. Fantastic. And for the longest time, I felt like I was the only person that had ever seen that movie because I would mention it and people were like, "What?" Like they'd never heard of it. And it slowly garnered more and more of a fan base over the years. And at least now I know other people that have seen it. That's what this one feels like to me is it's a it's hard to call it a hidden gem but it is kind of a hidden gem but it's like it's underseen right. more people just need to right. see the movie will it will it be revered as one of the better 90s action films no it's not it's just not going to be that but if more people see it it'll get appreciated it's got that cult classic it's got all the elements yes. to be a cult classic and it just it feels like it bombed at the box office and got forgotten for about 20 years, and now it's starting to get its momentum. People are starting to to figure out what it is. Um, and it's just a good time. That's what makes it so great. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it, It's got great messages here and there, but they're kind of smattered about. But ultimately, it's just a good time. <laughs> it is. It's just a fun time. Uh, definitely check it out. It's totally worth it. Theo, thank you so much Absolutely. for bringing this to, oh, to me. Absolutely. And for coming on the show. This is a great discussion. Absolutely. A, Thank you for having me. Ab- now, now you do, you are part of the part-time gamers, correct? Correct. Yes, I've actually got that in a little bit. And then I also do uh, on Swellcast, you can find me under Mr. Bingo. And that's literally me just talking to myself for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. 
Excellent. Swell, Swellcast and the part-time gamers. If you want more Theo, you can find him there. Mr. Bingo on the Swellcast. I love it. Um, excellent. And uh, we got to get you out of here because you've got uh, part-time gamers coming up. So. Sure Sean, do. <laughs> Sean will yell at me if I'm not. I promised him you would be done yes. in time. So Yes, I'm cheating on him. It's OPP, other people's podcasts. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thank you. Thank you so much for being here. We'll ha- definitely got to get you back. Uh, we'll find yes, next time. Absolutely. Next time, I'm showing you something new. All right, we're gonna we're gonna find yes, something you haven't I'm looking seen, forward to it. and we'll we'll do that. Um, next week, I have uh, oh, I've got a good one coming next week. I know, I just can't remember what it is because, well, you know, it's been that type of week for me. I've been very very busy. Amen. I, <laughs> I am gonna watch for the first time Mulholland Drive. I. <gasps> I have been in a kick uh, the past year of wanting to watch more David Lynch. So Mulholland Drive is coming up next week, and I'm I'm looking forward oh, to it. My my last joy. My my last David Lynch film was uh, Blue Velvet, and I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Like I did. It's my not, favorite Lynch movie. Yeah, it's, I, it's something that's really just whoa. So, so well done. Yeah, so this this should be pretty pretty fun. So Mulholland Drive next week. Um, now, this show typically records on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. You can come hang out there. We, we recorded a little bit earlier tonight, but uh, every week we do that. comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, ratings and reviews are always welcome, of course. Uh, you can go to tvstravis.com to find this show or any other shows that I work on. And you can also, if you if you want to financially support this show, there is a Patreon, patreon.com slash W-Y-H-S. Um, and that is as little as a dollar per episode. Uh, you get um, episodes earlier. And I'm also working on a, uh, a movie a monthly movie catch-up. Um, and what that is is going back through the back catalog of this show and picking movies that people haven't seen yet and watching them together, do a little movie watch along. So that's part of the Patreon at, uh, at certain levels, but definitely check that out if you can. Um, and uh, just listening to the show and being being a part of the audience is so wonderful. Thank you all for, for all of that. So Theo, thank you. And thank until, you so much for having me. Yes, until next week and, uh, and Mulholland Drive, which I can't wait for. Um, <laughs> remember to enjoy your movies. And uh, let's be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Amen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>